Um, we, to kind of catch you up on where we are going or where we have been, God, in his one story, created and then he called. He called Abraham, who was a barren couple, to be the father of his nation. He promised him to leave his land and that he would give him a land. So then Abram goes. He went as God called him. He has a child 25 years after the promise was given him. He then has these children have children and children and children. And as a result, they end up in Egypt because God is saving them from a famine. And they stay in Egypt. Seventy move to Egypt and then they rise to about a a million people or more. And the Egyptians go, we are terrified that these people may stage a coup, may throw an insurrection, may try to be used against us. And so we need to uh, put an iron fist to them. We need to abuse, mistreat, and to try to diminish their population. So we try killing all the babies. We try ruthlessly working them. And none of it works. Eventually, Moses, the one drawn from the water, is then chosen as God's shepherd for his people to then lead the people out of the uh, Egyptian captivity across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then they watch on the banks as the morning hits and all the Egyptians chasing them to kill them are removed. So that's where we stand. So now Moses has this two million people that he has to lead. I don't know, but I learned this in college. When you live with new people, it's very difficult. Over my four years, I live with 13 different people. That makes me sound like I'm a terrible roommate. I don't think that was the case. We, in my head, it's we want to be the, we were the place people wanted to live. I had 13 different roommates. When you have that many different people that you're sharing a space and sharing life with, you learn that you have to have rules. So, uh, not Sheldon Cooper style, but we had some roommate agreements where here is what you are supposed to do. There were rules on who cleaned and what was clean look like. There were rules on when, you know, the TV needed to be blaring and who should be over and when they should be over. If girls could be here or girls could be there. There were rules in our household. Because rules establish how we could live well together. And I remember we had a friend named Jeff Hearn who moved in with us. He subleased for a little while. And Jeff had another friend. We loved Jeff. Jeff was so much fun. And Jeff had a friend named Taylor. We liked Taylor a lot. Corlin, was that you? Sorry. <laughs> Taylor was a lot of fun. But Taylor didn't like where he lived. He liked where we lived. But Taylor didn't pay rent. So Taylor slept on our couch every night. Taylor got so comfortable that he started a dynasty on my Xbox in NCAA football. And so I would walk home from a day's work or whatever I did, and I would show up and he'd be like, oh, I'm in the first quarter, it's going to be a while. But you don't live here. <laughs> and so then we'd have to like be quiet in the mornings because Taylor's asleep on our couch. So we had to make some rules. Because living with people needs rules and regulations and guidelines of how are you supposed to live. I remember the very first time that I took students on a youth retreat. I was a freshly minted youth minister, been on the job for about three months, and we took them to Jekyll Island for a camp. So it's just outside of Savannah, Georgia. And my teacher side came out. Some of you may not know, but I was a high school math teacher for a year. And thank you. Uh, so I sat down and I pretty much said, if you do anything stupid or wrong, I've heard it later, if you add or subtract from the population, if you go to jail or do something like that, I'm not worried about it. Your parents are coming to get you. I don't care. That's not a phone call I'm hesitant to ask. 
I completely freaked those students out. Like, they were like, oh, my gosh, like, who is this guy? We thought he was our fun youth pastor, and now, like, he's like prison guard. Like, it was rules established because we, we need ground rules of how are we to live. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. All right, so if you want to flip there, we're going to start reading in 19, but to kind of set up where we're going, Leviticus is a book of rules for the people of God to live like the people of God. All right, so God is saying, here's how you live as my people. The the book of Leviticus is a book for the nation of God to live like a nation of God. These are my chosen people. You are to be a light to the nations. And this land that I'm going to give you that's in the heart of all these other pagan nations, I want you to live in such a way that they see you and you live in such a contrast to their culture that they're attracted to you and they realize that following me is different than following every other God that anybody has ever come up with. This is the point of Leviticus. These rules lead to evangelism lead to others coming to understand who God is and why He is worthy of our worship. So Leviticus is a book of laws about worship, about dress code. There's laws about diet and holidays, laws about how to live, how to be a neighbor, how to raise a family, how to treat visitors. This is specific rules on how to be holy. So what is holy? I bet you if I asked 10 people in this room, I said, give me the definition of holy, five of you would say set apart. And you would have no clue how to apply that. Holy means to be set apart. Okay, what does that mean? How do I live holy? So a better definition that I think is more clearly understanding what it is, is this. To be holy is to be only and completely devoted to God. To be set apart for him is only and completely given over to him, devoted to God. So, so what makes something holy? Let me illustrate it this way. I want to make 12 muffins, blueberry, all right? So I get the flour, or let's just be honest. I get the little mix, the package, I pour it in, right? <laughs> Third a cup of milk, stir. Don't stir over too much. It messes up the gluten somehow, if that's a real thing. Um, so, but you don't overstir, you mix it as much, stir. Okay, so I've got 12 muffins, and I slide them into the oven. Same ingredients, same oven, same cook time, everything. And then I take those 12 muffins out. Six of them I take out carefully, and then I carry and I place on the altar of the Lord. In the, in the Levitical times, there would have been the showbread. I don't think they used blueberry muffins, but we're going to do it for our sake right now. I set it on the altar as the bread of presence. That bread, that muffin, is holy. But then this other six, I pull out, and then we eat. That bread is the opposite of holy, which most of us go unholy, right? No, it's actually common. So the, the way that the, the God in Leviticus operates is you have either things are holy or they are common. The holy bread is there, not because it has special ingredients or it was specially cooked. The holy bread is holy because it has a purpose. It's on the altar. The other bread that is just eaten is just fine. It is common. That's a huge differential that the book of Leviticus is setting up for us that we as Christians need to understand. Holy is all about this purpose. So common can then further be broken down. You can have common clean and unclean. Unclean is going to be like dead corpse or pigs or um, skin diseases, all that sort of stuff, all right? 
But there's common clean. There's common good things that we enjoy and take part of every day. That, that's kind of what we need to understand. So Leviticus 19, verse 1, God says, Speak, I mean, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation. Make sure everybody hears this. And say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is before Peter comes up and says, Hey, we should live holy. Remember the radical book we did last year? This is before we've had any of these other things. This is God saying for His nation, His people, His priests, His worship, His holidays, they are to be holy because He is holy. And so, most basically, the book of Leviticus is how God's people ought to live holy. I like to say it this way. Leviticus is how the holy are made holy, holy. A lot of synonyms, I mean, a lot of homophones or homonyms, homonyms, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, This is a book showing us the failures, how we ought to live in a way that pleases and honors and glorifies God. So, as you open, though, Leviticus, so we've been in 19. Now flip back to chapter 1. And what does it say in your heading? It probably says something about burnt offerings, doesn't it? Do you know what's interesting? Is that God starts His book of the law with how to be made right before He tells you what you did wrong. How to be cleansed, how to be clean, how to be... uh, saved from your sin before he's told you all of what's going on. And some of you may go, well, that's not fair. But in fact, we all know inside of us is this uh, universal understanding of right and wrong, of good and bad, of sin and holiness. We don't have it all the way played out, but we understand the gist of it. And so what is God saying? Before I tell you how you're not measuring up to my guidelines, I want to show you my grace. Yeah, there's grace in the Old Testament, and that's what he's doing. Grace comes before the guidelines. Now, what does Paul say? Romans chapter 1. Paul will say this. He says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, them just being all people, but most specifically the sinners he's pointing out right now. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. We can see God. To say we do not see Him or understand Him or know that He existed is to disagree with the foundations of how God made this world. It is us who are disobedient and disregard Him. So Leviticus starts with sacrifices. How to get right. Why sacrifices? Because sacrifice is the only acceptable payment to God for our sin. What is sin? Sin is a breach of contract with God. It is actively choosing to disobey what God has called us to do. Sacrifice is also paid for uncleanness. Maybe that were not even sin. So how could you become unclean? You could become unclean by going to a funeral and hugging the deceased. There's people that do that. Um, you could be unclean by uh, getting sick that week, having a skin disease, having mold in your home, having to pick up a carcass or eating fish without scales or having some pork for dinner or eating a rabbit because it was easy to catch. You could become unclean if you have sinned. 
All of these things would cause us to be unclean and cause us to then make sacrifices for cleansing, for purification. Thankfully, unclean is a state, not a destination. God calls us to holiness, and yet we will work in an opposite way, and yet He doesn't leave us there and go, well, you chose this, you're done. No, He allows us to be made clean through His sacrificial system. Now, let's talk about that word sacrifice. Sacrifice actually requires sacrifice. Now, I know that's probably the dumbest point I've ever put on the screen, besides persist, persist, persist. If you weren't in spring retreat last year, ask somebody. I make typos. But, but what's going on here is God is saying, hey, you need to make a sacrifice. And, and too many times we have turned in this sacrifice is like, oh, I'm going to make the sacrifice of waking up to go to church. Or I'm going to read my Bible or think about praying today. No, a sacrifice is actually costly. It hurts. It's felt. It causes you, because you said yes to God, you have to say no to something else. It is a sacrifice. You go without because of something. So when God set up the sacrificial system, he said, all right, I want you to bring an animal from the herd or from the flock. But my FFA people will get this. It wasn't just any, not the one that's just like about to die, like, okay, yeah, like this would just be a practical reason. Let's just go ahead and kill him. We can use this for God. Like it's a capital gains law, so we'll just use that. I think me and David are the only ones that maybe understand what that meant, but yeah, we'll move on with that. So, no, God says this. Bring me your best. Bring me the grand champion. Bring me the winner of the banner. Bring me the one that you have spent years getting ready to show. You have slaved over and petted and taught to walk and to follow directions. The one that you have spent every night brushing. That's the one I want. The perfect, the spotless, the without blemish. For some people you may go, what great waste. But for the worshiper of God, he willingly sacrifices because he knows the great worth of making this sacrifice to his God. See, we say, oh, we sacrifice for God. But how much of what I give really stops me from living any way that I want to live? Am I really generous or am I just following directions? Am I really driven? This week, Danielle and I were in a meeting and it was talking about the first fruits to God and and the lady said, first fruits is not the first check you write or first bank draft that you do. No, to give God your first fruits is to give him your first and your best. And then everything else has to respond to that. Because I have given God this, I now need to set up every other budget in line with this sacrifice. It hasn't gotten easier, guys. It's more and more challenging. So, one last point I want to make on a sacrifice here is this. Some of you may go, well, what if they didn't have a bull? Or what if they only had one? If you read, just read the burnt offering chapter, chapter 1. God establishes protocols that meets each tax bracket. God allows for worship to be done no matter your economic situation. So you got bulls? Okay, well, you need to sacrifice a bull. You don't have bulls, you got goats? All right, there you go. 
You got lambs? Okay, here you go. You don't have any of those? Well, go get some birds. If you don't have that, you can give bread, a grain offering. Why? Because money doesn't stop people from being able to worship their God. So God here is talking about, it's not about the sum, but it's about the sacrifice. It's why Jesus, when he looks at that widow who gives the two cents, he says she gave more than anybody else. Why? Because she gave out of her poverty what she didn't have. They, got about, they gave out of their excess what they wouldn't miss. So Leviticus is how to worship, how to be cleansed, how to honor God, how to please Him, how to be acceptable to God. So you got Moses leading this group of millions of people out in a wilderness. And God shows up and He says, this is how my nation ought to live. Here's what they should avoid, like child sacrifices or sexual immorality. Here's what animals they should eat and what they shouldn't. Here's how they should schedule their week, their month, their year. Here's how they should care for a stranger. Here is the rules to live by, to honor me. And then in Leviticus 26, and if you will, one last time, flip there with me. Leviticus 26, God says this, starting in verse 3. If you walk... If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. Now, I'm just going to tell you, two chapters before that, he has said, every seven years, nobody works in the land. You give it rest. Yeah, it probably needs some pruning. You probably want to just go and just work on it here or tinker there. No, no, no. We're going to have to have a, a year of faith. So if we follow those commandments, those statutes... And if we do them, what does God say? Verse 4, I will give you rain in their seasons, and the land will yield its increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last from the last time of the grape harvest, to the, uh, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in the land securely. I will give you peace in the land. You shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land. The sword shall never go through the land. You shall close. I mean, you shall chase your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and, con and you will confirm. I will confirm my covenant with you. Excuse me. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. Verse 12, and I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I'm a poor reader, so let me give you a quick overview of what he just said. I'm going to give you rain at the right time, and the land's going to produce a lot of good stuff. I'm going to give you harvests that never end. You're going to move from one harvest season to the next. I'm going to give you peace in the land. Wild animals that come and devour your herds, your flocks, and even take your children. Yeah, I'm going to remove them. You know those armies that try to pass through? I'm taking them out. You're going to have victory over your enemies. So much so that five of you can defeat a hundred of them and a hundred of you can beat ten thousand of them. I'm going to grow your nation. And then an almost an Eden-like promise. Verse 12, I'm going to be in your midst, walking with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. If you will follow. Now let's read verse 14. But if you will not listen to me, and you will not do these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. 
I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. You shall sow your seed in vain and your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you shall flee when no one even pursues you. And in spite of this, if you still don't listen to me. So those were warning shots. Then I will discipline you again sevenfold. I will break the pride of your power. I will make the heavens like iron, the earth like bronze. It ain't going to rain and the ground's going to be hard as a rock or as bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. It's going to go on for about uh, 20 more, 25 more verses. I'm going to stop there. If you do not obey sickness, verse 16, and disease, 17, enemies will rule over you. 20, the land will not produce. 22, those beasts that I promised to expel, well, yeah, they're going to come back and kill your children and take your livestock. 26, food's going to become scarce. 29, you're going to resort to cannibalism. 30, you're going to start building these worship sites and I'm just going to destroy them. 31, your cities are going to turn to ruin. 33, I'm going to kick you out of the land that I'm about to give you that's flowing with milk and honey. 36, you're going to live in such great fear that when a leaf blows because of the wind, you're going to pee your pants and you're so scared. That's what life is going to be like if you do not listen and obey and follow what I do. I could not be more simple, and yet, how much of our lives look like faithfulness or unfaithfulness? God has laid out His expectations, His rules, and His desires to the tenants or to His people, and only good will come with following them, and yet... The rest of Scripture is going to be, how do they handle this? Really poorly. Now, I'm not standing here this morning to say that if you follow these rules, that God is going to materially and financially and familially bless you. There's some churches you could probably go to that will say that. I wouldn't encourage it. But here's what I am going to tell you. As we now operate under a new covenant, I guarantee you that if you will spend your life for the sake of God, sacrificially living for Him, Romans 12, here's what I do promise, that your life will be worth it. All the disciples, they don't have huge plots of lands on this oil reserves where they're just making money after money after money. No, no, no. You know what happened to all the disciples who were faithful to Jesus? They ended up killed because of their conviction and their following of Christ. But I guarantee you, every single one of them would say it is worth it. It's not a waste. Paul says in Romans 7, so what do we do with the law? Should we say that it is sin? By no means. Now, if I hadn't known of the law, I might not have really known of all the sin that I commit. I I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And then he's going to go on. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase. But now all I want to do is covet. You said I can't do this. And now all I want to do because of the sinful and fleshly side within me makes me want to and desire to do anything but what God has called me to. The very commandment, verse 10, that promised life has proved to be death because sin, seizing an opportunity within me, has taken hold of me and is killing me because of it. Verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The book of Leviticus is holy and righteous and good. It's all you sinners. 
that aren't holy and righteous and good. It's me that is not holy and righteous and good. So what do we do with the book of Leviticus? Paul understands this 7, 15. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very things I hate. So what do we take away with Leviticus, and why do we spend a week on this? The book of Leviticus shows us the rules and expectations of God, and it also reveals to us that we could never meet them. The book of Leviticus shows us what God desires, and it shows us that we can never maintain it. It shows us a need for a Savior. We will fall, we will fail, we will flee what God says. We will disobey, we will disregard, and we will disagree with what He says is good. And yet, in this, He says, I am going to come to you. I will provide a once and for all sacrifice that can and does keep the whole law. I will provide a once and for all sacrifice that can and does pay for all of your sin. I will provide a once and for all sacrifice that will make a way for you to be holy because you cannot do it on your own. Moses, when he was wandering around with the people, they built this thing called the tabernacle. and It was the worship site for God. And they would have special equipment and special altars. And they had this special tent called uh, the tent of meeting. And they would have... Um, the holy place, and then they had the Holy of Holies where God was thought to be dwelling. And only once a year would anybody, and there was only one person, the high priest would go into that Holy of Holies to, to be with God and to make atonement for the sins of the people. And now, in Jesus Christ, as Hebrews will tell us, the Holy of Holies now dwells with us. The, the sinful priest who made atonement for himself before he could even make atonement for us has been replaced with the sinless priest, the great high priest who does this all for us once and for all. The scapegoat that we have put our hands on and say, flee with our sins out into the wilderness. Our sins have now been placed on the Lamb of God, the spotless, perfect Lamb of God who sacrificed himself so that we no longer sacrifice. That sacrifice that was daily, weekly, and monthly, and yearly repeated has now been replaced with the once and for all that is found in Jesus Christ. Leviticus points us to a sacrificial system, but it's preparing us for the great sacrifice. Holiness matters, but holiness is only found in Christ Jesus. How you live matters. Peter 1, 1 Peter 1. Live holy, for I am holy. And then he goes on, 2.12. Live such good lives among the Gentiles. Why? So they see your good works and they glorify God who is in heaven. How we live matters. Leviticus, the purpose of Leviticus was to establish a radically different society of people who loved their neighbor, who didn't cheat on their wife, who worshipped only one God, who didn't work on Sunday, who avoided what others considered delicacies. Why? Because pork is good, guys. Why? Because they were living in a way that pointed to their obedience to their God and attracted others to it because they were fruitful and they were victorious. And they were obviously doing this by a supernatural power, not by themselves. So my question to you, if Leviticus is setting us up to live in such a way that is radically different, how different is your life?
If Leviticus is calling us to live holy, how devoted are you to God? Does He get your first and best, or does He get whatever is left over if there is leftovers? How sacrificial are you? Romans 12.1 Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual worship. This doesn't go away when Jesus shows up. The point of Leviticus, how the holy may live holy and holy. That's the call on us. So what you watch, what you wear, how you speak, how you treat others, who you date, how you date, what you post, what you follow, what you study, if you study, where you live, how you live, with whom you live, is it different? Is it obvious? Do you contrast society in any way? Or are you trying to live in complete homogeny with society and Christianity? Sorry to burst your bubble. And I don't care how cool the Christian bubble is. We're called to be contrast. To live different on purpose for a purpose. That's what God is calling us to. The book of Leviticus is a hard read. All right, Don't encourage new Christians just to start there. But as you sit in the sacrificial system and as you understand the rules, what you see is following the laws of God requires a faith that He is good and that He is in control. Because it doesn't make sense just to stop working. It doesn't make sense just to release all your servants, just let them go back to land. It doesn't make sense to establish a society in that way. Only it makes sense if you follow God and you believe that He's good. So, uh, this is the way the nation should live. Spoiler alert, they don't. And so uh, it's going to be pointing us out over the next few weeks. But let me pray. I want you to, those three questions. How's your life different? How's your life devoted to God? And how are you living sacrificially? I want you to consider that this week. And so I'm going to pray. Um, and then Asher and the team, y'all come up and just give them a little bit of time to consider those words. All right? So, dear Lord, we, we're sorry. For we have failed to live in ways that honor and please and glorify you. We have failed to follow you and to believe that following you is worth it.